Welcome to the Words Matter podcast, the Course Health series. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter podcast. I'm Oliver Thompson. So in this episode of the Course Health series, I'm speaking with Professor Anna-Louise Shurkengen about her chapter 15 that she wrote for the Course Health book titled Broken Child, a Diseased Woman. Anna-Louise is a professor of general practice in the Department of Public Health and Nursing at the Norwegian University of Science and Technology, and she's worked as a general practitioner for 30 years. She specialises on the health impacts of childhood violation and is author of many papers on the topic and also two books titled The Lived Experience of Violation and Inscribed Bodies, Health Impacts of Childhood Sexual Abuse, Creating Chronicity. And I've linked these books in the show notes. So in this episode, we speak about her experience as a GP and researcher and the importance of stories and why she thinks phenomenology and whole person approaches are a crucial and ethical requirement for all healthcare professionals. We speak again about the problem of the biomedical model from a clinical and research perspective. We speak about how she sees the body as being inscribed and saturated with meaning, and how healthcare must stop thinking of the silent body and the speaking mind. We talk about how frameworks and endorse mind-body dualism are deeply problematic, and how she sees all experience as embodied. Finally, Anna-Louise shares how she facilitates the patient's narratives and her openness to encourage patients to confide, in detail, their stories of harm, shame and abuse. So this was a rich and detailed conversation with someone who has spent decades seeking to understand whole people, their suffering, their hardship and their lives. Anna-Louise shares some specific details of people she has encountered through her work that have been abused as children. If you think this might be too difficult to hear, you may choose to skip a couple of minutes on from around 24 minutes in. So I bring you Professor Anna-Louise Shurkengen. Anna-Louise, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Oliver. So our conversation represents the last of the chapter written by the clinician. So there's a final chapter of the book, which is when Samantha, Rani and Eleanor bring the thoughts together. But you're the the last, but not least, or the best or last. (laughs) Well. (laughs) And so your chapter was really interesting. It was quite different from the the previous chapters. And I'm really looking forward to, to talking about it. But before we launch in, perhaps you could just describe or tell us a bit about your clinical and academic background? Yes, well, I came to Norway as an adult immigrant in 1972 after having graduated from medical school in Germany uh, and after having passed my compulsory internship and Norwegian examination, I settled for becoming a GP in Oslo in the capital. Uh, Eventually, after a few years, I uh, was appointed specialist in general practice family medicine and then gained also the authorization of being a tutor for specialists to be in general practice. Some years later, I received my first fellowship at the University of Oslo, linked to the Institute of General Practice, Family Medicine, which was a short-time fellowship. It was some kind of a training to, in a way, get accustomed to think of myself as a potential researcher. That led to that I received a grant from the Norwegian Research Council in the beginning of the 90s and entered a PhD or at that time doctoral program, which led to that I defended a medical thesis um, built on or based on a material collected among adult incest survivors 
at the at that time two only incest centers in Norway. Uh, the choice of my topic came from my practice, which we can return to if you want. But uh, when interviewing these people, by then I had learned that I had to adopt a framework which allowed me to ask and talk and converse around health-related problems in a different framework than the biomedical. I choose phenomenology and phenomenology and hermeneutics are close to each other. So I defended a thesis, which was phenomenological and hermeneutical and monography, which was quite unusual because doctors usually write and publish articles. And it, well, it, it, it made me, it, it gave me a little bit trouble because I was so out of mainstream, both as to choice of method, as to choice of framework, as to choice of epistemology, as to choice of tutors, um, and of course, as to choosing to write a monography. But still, uh, after having defended my thesis, I went back to my practice full time uh, until 2006, when I was appointed a part-time professorship at the University of Tromsø, which is the northernmost university of the world, and simultaneously at the university in Trondheim. I have still a connection to Trondheim, although I've passed the 70th for several years ago, and I'm still linked to or connected with a group of colleagues at the Institute of General Practice at the uh, University of Tromsø. So that was that's my background, and that means that since 2006 I haven't seen patients as a doctor, but I still am in contact with informants because I've done research mm. and people have found me on the background that I've written articles and books and people have taken contact and have given me permission to um, use their stories as material in my lectures and for teaching and writing. And I'm presuming that uh, Cecily that features in, in the chapter, she was one of your previous patients. No. No, okay. She, no, I never was her doctor. Okay. Uh, I came into contact with her by means of that one of her therapists, a psychomotor therapist, psychomotor physiotherapist, uh, had um, studied in, in Norway, had her training from Norway and had um, attended some lectures I had given at her university. And she invited me together with the other therapist, uh, a psychologist, those two therapists invited me to meet their mm. patient, Cecily, and Cecily agreed to a collaboration between the four of us, uh, which led to quite a lot of things um, among these lectures at the university hospital where she had been uh, treated, uh, where she had been, um, uh, she had been admitted twice to a psychiatric ward, and that was at the same clinic, at the same psychiatric university clinic, I was invited to give lectures and we, in a way, build up a lecture around her story and around her treatment together with the two therapists. And Cecily was present herself, which was a very strong experience for me as well, very moving and very interesting. But Cecily is one of very many people who came into contact with me after I was not a clinician anymore. And we can certainly talk about how you juxtapose her medical records in the chapter with her story and certainly your interpretation of the story. And that's a really interesting and powerful structure, which when I said at the beginning that your chapter was quite different, that was the distinguishing feature or characteristic that the way that it was very much, it was almost sequential story records, story records with some interpretive commentary, which I thought was really, really interesting and powerful. 
Yes, uh, I, I agree, and and thank you for saying this because this is a this is a method I've used frequently, mainly in lectures, uh, because those people who have taken contact with me and who have um, very often taken contact in order to say. I would like to tell you my story and if you can use it in your lectures, if you can use it to make health professionals understand how things are interrelated, then please use this stuff. Then I would feel it wasn't in vain that I have struggled so much with this. So this is some kind of invitation which I have been um, receiving quite often and which I'm very, very grateful for. And therefore, I both have the first voice account. I mean, what I try to mediate are not my words. It's very often the direct quotations of the persons I've talked with. And they have given me permission, which is equally valuable, to uh, have access to their records, to their medical records. And when then juxtaposing the story the history and the records, it becomes so clear what's left out in the interaction between the system and the patient, the dominating epistemology and the history which is unfolding in the lived body. Uh, so when you say it's it's different from what the other uh, contributors have written, it's quite quite right. And it's in a way a method which has shown me uh, to be very, to have a very strong impact on students and health professionals when I use this in my lectures. And therefore I thought I could use it as well in a text. And I think I just want to go back a, a few steps to your, to your PhD. And, and I'm interested in both monography, which I it's not a methodology I'm familiar with, but also that journey into qualitative research, phenomenology, hermeneutics, whether that was an easy transition coming from a, and I'm using air quotes here, a scientific medical background, and what, what that transition was like. Uh, it wasn't either easy nor given. But by that, by the time when I became a PhD student, I had uh, already uh, lots of experience from my clinical practice in talking about hardship, adversity, and how it inflicts upon and impacts upon um, the development of disease and of bodily habits, which become a problem and which uh, are the start of health problems, which are the start of chronic pains, of ways of behaving, of ways of being, of ways of moving, of ways of not breathing freely, with ways uh, ways of, of bodily tension, which I was familiar with, but in a non-biomedical way. Mm. So when starting to conceptualize what should be my my topic or the area of my research, uh, I, I was quite aware that I wouldn't be able to come close to the kind of stuff which I wanted to encounter and which I wanted to document. Uh, and that I, well, that... I, by necessity, had to learn new tools. So I started with um, joining courses with anthropologists, uh, philosophers, um, uh, people who knew something about qualitative methods, but not only in order to learn the methodology, but rather to become acquainted with talking within different frameworks, within an, a different understanding of the human body and human experience than biomedicine does. Because in biomedicine, we have no language for experience and how it is embodied. I had to go to, to phenomenology and methodology from, from anthropology in order to be able to frame my interviews, my in-depth interviews in an adequate manner. 
Uh, and this was first and foremost a strive because it was not easy to it was not easy to 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 find uh, tutors. Um, I had to join courses and lectures which were outside of my institute or even my faculty. Uh, I had mm. to find uh, tutors uh, who were not physicians, which became a problem for the medical faculty. Um, but, well, methodology, epistemology from other areas than biomedicine helped me to understand uh, that phenomenology was a way into an uh, into a way of of grasping and and coming to grips with how experience is embodied. Embodiment became a key concept for me, and is still. But it strikes me that maybe you were holding some of these epistemological views even prior to your PhD, that the fact you were drawn towards meaning and experience and people in itself says something about the sort of knowledge that you valued in your experience as a clinician, that there was something beyond biomedical facts around people's circumstances or illnesses. Yes, um, daily experience in my practice was heavily informed by meeting women. Uh, when I started in my practice in 1975, I was the only female GP in my part of town. And therefore, during a few years, the majority of my patients were women. And with these women, violation experience entered my consultation. Uh, I wasn't prepared for that. Uh, during all my my training as a, as a physician, None of my male professors had ever talked about violation experience as such, unless, of course, if you got injuries and, and physical injuries. Uh, and, and not a word of, not a single word of sexual uh, violation experiences. That was the first thing. So I gradually came to understand that what I tried to treat was not the kind of stuff which I was trained to be able to treat. My equipment, my knowledge, my understanding was insufficient. It was inadequate. The inadequacy created some kind of shamefulness. I felt I should be able to understand. I, sh I felt I should be able to help. Uh, and still it didn't. But Whenever I opened up for perspectives which were not primarily biomedical, but experiential, then there was suddenly an opening to understand why this person was so painful, why this body was so ill, why this pattern of symptoms or problems was so idiosyncratic was so special for this very special person and why personhood and subjectivity were so important for me as a doctor to have taken into consideration in order to be able to be a good doctor. You see, there was a clear discrepancy between what I thought I mastered and what I didn't or what I thought I should master according to my training and, and didn't. But by and by, I think I post-graduated in a type of school which is also led by experience. As a doctor, I experienced that I understood more and more salient and more crucial conditions and premises and details when I opened up for an understanding which included and encompassed lived life and embodiment. Yes, indeed. And so what did that entail in terms of being open to that lived life embodiment story? Practically, what would that kind of look like with, with your patients that maybe 
like contrast with what your colleagues, which weren't as open or open at all to some of those perspectives? How would this look like? Let me say I would start with wondering, more wondering than asking questions. I could say, I wonder how you got this hearing problem. I, I, I try to, in a way, link it to a practical uh, example. A young woman having been almost functionally deaf for several years and in specialist care for uh, two decades almost, which was quite problematic because she lived in the north and specialists are... Uh, rare in the north of Norway, so she had to travel every time she had been um, um, examined. And she vividly recalled all those traveling uh, in order to just have a check of her hearing capacity and again having confirmed that she didn't hear sufficiently. Uh, But then she left home in order to study um, in a university town farther south and suddenly she could hear again. Uh, this was confirmed by uh, adequate medical tests, but it was not it was not responded to by the specialists with some kind of astonishment. How come you suddenly are able to hear and how come the curves are normal? And what has happened? What has happened to your life? There was no wondering. And by sheer coincidence, I met her shortly after that. And and just my wondering, what happened? What what could this what could this be? Started a dialogue about how she had been abused by her father sexually from age six to age 18 when she left home and how she had shielded herself against what her father used to say and utter and, well, the words, the the sounds he made when abusing her, which were unbearable for her. And she had learned just not to hear. She had shielded and protected herself against hearing the sounds her father made. That was her only possibility to maintain some kind of self-respect and some kind of 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 dignity. It just resonates with Brian Broom last week, and he uses a similar phraseology about imagining. Yeah, imagining what this person might be uh, thinking or feeling, or, or what their story might be. So just to be open to those possibilities that there's a whole range yes. of possibilities which you don't know until you're open to them yes and which you can't know and which i sometimes have thought of that i wouldn't have the imagination to make these pictures of my own but daring to see in my mind what my patients and informants have told me has given me the possibility to understand. Imagine how oral penetration is performed when there is such a mismatch between a male erected penis and a mouth of a five years old. If you dare imagine how this looks like, and almost impossible, dare imagine how it might feel You can understand that, for example, oral forced penetration is unmaking all the making and the unmaking. You know this fantastic book of Elaine's Carey, uh, The Body in Pain, Unmaking, Making and Unmaking of a World. Elaine's Carey has given me this word that everything can be unmade by torture. Everything can be unmade by being part of abuse, by being part of maltreatment. Uh, every instrument, every uh, thing can be unmade and made into an instrument of torture and pain. The unmaking of the mouth affects, you can imagine, breath, tasting, eating speaking, laughing, 
kissing, enjoying, opening up, even in a symbolic sense or even in a metaphorical sense. You, you, you can think of these possibilities the very moment you dare open the space for a description that the person tells you how this was done, how this felt, how she survived. I learned of one of my female patients that being plugged in the mouth could be survived, although you almost not could not breathe, by learning to keep your breath. We know from, there are people in the Pacific who dive for pearls, for muslings with pearls. They can keep their breath for many minutes. You can train it. And she trained it this way. She survived by learning to keep their breath until her perpetrator was done with it. And then she could almost come to the surface again. She had these pictures of diving and being beyond the surface and coming up to the surface again. She had extreme problems with allergy, with asthma, with intolerances, with gastrointestinal problems because she had been forced to swallow semen. She had the disgustive feeling of being invaded and infected and all the way down from her mouth to her stomach and and all the symptomatology she had offered me and I had tried to relate to became comprehensible the very moment I understood what had been done to her over years and how this must have felt in her little body. But this is not only valid for sexual abuse. Of course, sexual abuse is, is an extreme way of of integrity violation, but all kinds of integrity violation can result in direct inscriptions into the body, which was the result or the conclusion of my thesis and which made me choose the title for when my thesis was transformed into a book in 2001. I choose the title Inscribed Bodies. Bodily inscriptions had I seen by then in to such a degree and with such a clarity and with such an an ambiguity that I was sure, I was really sure that these inscriptions existed. By and by, the large field of neuroscience has by now demonstrated that in fact it is like this. These experiences are not only inscribed in our physiology by ways of dysfunctions uh, as a result of chronic uh, stress and chronic overactivation of the stress response axis, but actually inscribed into brain structures, functions and connectivity, as the brain researchers call it. So what's done to our body is inscribed in bodily structures and becomes either habits, as you know them from physiotherapy, ways of moving, ways of keeping the body, ways of not being able to, in a way, avoid tension or movements which were created once upon a time as protective measures by people who had no other options, who had no possibility to get away from what was done to them. And this is, of course, the case, the smaller a person is who is abused. But it's also a case if you are stuck in class or ethnicity or color of skin, which is deemed inferior in your society and you belong to a stratum or a group in your population which experiences the scorn and, and, and disgust or the disrespect and disregard of the majority of the population. This creates a, single, a similar way of being in the world as marginalized, stigmatized, harassed, ridiculed, 
uh, disrespected. It creates chronic stress and it disturbs your physiology and alters the brain structures. This is how it works. It very much resonates with what you said before, that the body is saturated with meaning and that the idea that we've got to stop thinking of the body is silent and we have a speaking mind and that dualism, which I think you're alluding to there, perhaps expand on that and relate that to your clinical practice as a GP where you where that dualism was apparent. Yes, of course. It starts with the dualism, which is the matrix of our training and which is the ground of medical biomedical knowledge is anchored in or, or based on. And in this perspective or in this framework, framework, not perspective, in this framework, body is matter and mind is non-matter. And that has led to tradition unfolding in quite different practices to address what is defined as mind, our thoughts, our emotions, our way of experiencing, of, of relating. By words, we speak about this. We have made it the domain of the psychologists and psychiatrists. And then there is the body, the material body, which is in a way conceptualized as being non-communicative, only matter from which you have to extract the the basis for knowledge by uh, whatever kinds of material you can extract blood and stools and tissues and 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 urine and uh, well lots of material which can be gathered and analyzed and scrutinized and result in giving us informations about the state of this matter, from this deducing information about the state of the body. So to read body appear, bodily appearance, the way of walking, the way of going, the way of breathing, the way of keeping the breath, is not in biomedicine given any importance in the sense of being adequate or or equal uh, information as compared to what you can extract from the body and what you can analyze. So therefore, the sil- making the silent body uh, the first and prior object of biomedical uh, examination, and then of course by means of extracts and and uh, materials, kinds of materials, uh, is uh, considered to be the most appropriate way of gathering information about bodily ailments. If you do not succeed in coming to a good conclusion, the medical toolkit opens up for talking about the things, talking about what is the problem, what is wrong. But these informations, because they are by their very nature subjective, they are given given you by the person you talk with, they are not as reliable as the information you can extract from the body. So they are inferior, they are deemed as not so valuable, not so reliable, not so important and of secondary kind. So the speaking mind and the non-speaking body are still the point of departure for almost all kind of biomedical Mm. examination. And thereby, you have also ranked objectivity uh, and subjectivity, making subjectivity the subjective accounts of how you are in the world and how your being is informed by your ailments, a secondary source for information which is not so valuable and not so reliable as the other source which you can tap by techniques giving you access to the bodily material 
and the possibilities of monitoring the body by means of these instruments, tests, techniques, and so on. And so in your clinical practice, I'm assuming you sent away for blood tests and requested imaging and tried to obtain information from an individual's body, but at the same time, you were very much interested in the, the meaning of which the, the, the body expressed, or, or I'm interested in how, and I spoke to Brian about this, how one, or those possible tensions, or how you marry those two pursuits from obtaining reduced biomedical facts about an individual's nervous system or cardiovascular system, but at the same time, very much interested in their life story, their experience, the experience they place and you place together or construct on the experience of illness itself. So perhaps just give us a sense of how those two, how you didn't fall into dualism, but yet at the same time met the, the regulatory and medical needs and expectations of being a doctor. Yes, and I fell into the trap of dualism in the beginning because I didn't know that it was a trap. Uh, I didn't know it was a trap for for me and for the patients. But as I did, tried to describe, I gradually, it dawned upon me gradually that there was something lacking and that this lack of information, this lack of stuff was a crucial lack. It, it mattered uh, that I lacked these information, uh, certain informations, which then uh, became informations about how things were experienced means that I had to understand what what had happened meant to this person. Because the meaning of the experience is the subjective world, which I cannot predict, I cannot deduce it from anything. I cannot say you must have felt this or that. I can only listen to how did this feel, how was that experienced, what did that lead to? How did you respond? How were your options of doing something else than what you were, for example, forced to or the conditions you lived in? Because if I could learn that there was, for example, a person who had already, as a child, being trained to understand herself or himself as helpless or unimportant or rightless or just a nuisance. Uh, I have talked to so many people who um, have been met by their parents from as long as they can remember as something that should not have been born. You should not have been born. You should not exist. You are the, you are the reason that I'm so unhappy because I had to marry this man I got pregnant with, uh, for example. And knowing that a person from the very beginning had learned to think of herself or himself as not worth of being respected, this became a habit in the sense of not respecting themselves and not taking care of themselves. And not taking care of yourself will sooner or later result in kinds of health problems, which we in medicine are used to call lifestyle, but which is a very superficial way of... Uh, naming other people's way of being in the world. If you haven't learned to take care of yourself, how should you know how to do it? If you haven't learned that you are worth others' respect, how should you know and learn that you can demand to be respected? How can you know that you can, for example, base your existence on self-esteem if nobody showed you that you were uh, valuable for them, that you meant quite a lot for them. These ways of being are tightly and intimately interlinked with ways of behaving. 
with ways of responding to challenges, to tasks, to circumstances, to other people, to other people's demands, where the habit of not guarding one's own borders, integrity, I mean, becomes a way into health problems which are a result of continuous integrity violations and embodied shame. Being shameful creates a physiology which you cannot understand if you do not understand what makes this person shameful. So physiological findings in persons who are in complex disease and illness is the mirror of how they experience themselves in relation to other people. This must be united, this must be combined if you really want to get a deeper understanding of how you can help another person to change habits, to choose better or more adequate, um, uh, well, let me be very banal now, food or, or, or uh, activities or relationships that allow you to make radical changes in your life and thereby enhance your health and your health conditions. You spoke a bit about rather than or rather than you describing particular clinical methods or approaches that you would take with patients, you adopted a position of wonderment, wondering what this person might be experiencing or wondering about their story. But I just wonder what if there are other ways that you want to allude to about how you facilitated that storytelling from patients and given the, given the nature of some of the topics and conversations and experiences which would be quite difficult for people to tell but what have you found that has been helpful to facilitate the, the telling or the construction of those stories with patients? Being very close, listening carefully um, I may give you an example. I was encountered by a young colleague. Uh, she had been, she had, she had terminated her medical education. She was, um, she had done her internship. Everything had lasted much, much, much longer than usual. And when she was ready to go into clinical practice, she broke down. This breakdown led her into the university clinic and she was examined for quite a while, different specialists. The conclusion was both fibromyalgia and, and uh, ME, um, at that time, myalgic encephalopathia. The name has changed different times. And um, the specialists had advised her two years of uh, rehabilitation, recreation, before going back into the profession or starting in the profession, in the clinical profession. When um, she came to me, she had never had a primary uh, care physician before because she had seen specialists all the time. Um, and her records were, of course, uh, sent to me and I had received them in the advance. The records were quite heavy, quite voluminous and quite um, detailed. And when she came for the first consultation, I opened up with saying, well, I have seen your records, I have read them. The only thing I can see is there must be something which hasn't been understood as yet. And she, well, she she looked at me in, in some kind of bewilderment and uh, said, what do you mean with this? 
my answer must have been something like that. The, your, your, your story is so complex, so medically, medically complex, and so unconcluded, non-concluded, so unfinished, that I'm quite sure there must be stuff, experiences, matters, which haven't been taken into consideration, which haven't been, which haven't been thematized. In front of me, I could see that she dissociated. She disappeared and withdrew and became very bleak. It lasted for a few minutes and then she took a deep breath and then she zoomed in on me. I could see her eyes zooming me in and almost taking me in again and then saying, okay, if you have time to listen, I can tell you something. And then she started a story of having been maltreated by her parents and her elder brother from preschool age and her brother had violated her through all her study time and had even um, uh, come and, and, and see her uh, after she had um, left the town where she where the family lived uh, and had beaten her. Uh, her disease development was heavy. I, I do not, uh, I mean, I don't want to, to relate the details. This very moment when I said there is something lacking, I can't make, I can't make this, this doesn't make sense. The story doesn't make sense. She decided literally to open up, which was initiated by something which was habitual for her, withdrawing dissociation. She knew everything about that. She was perfect in dissociating because that was how she had survived. And she is back. I mean, it took a few years, but she is back in office <laughs> almost. Um, she, she came back to clinical work and she is fine by now. This moment, I will never forget her eyes as she zoomed me in as a camera almost and that was a voluntary and her her intention was to focus on me whether i could how i would react how i would react i guess this was the first test i've seen some something like this several times and also, when I, in a way, uh, receive an information or receive parts of a story and then say, this makes me think of, for example, of, of a woman telling me about her life after a breakdown. And we were talking about how her upbringing was. And she said she had very harsh parents. And I asked her, could she describe the harshness, how this would look like. And she described what was done to her. And I was just, I was almost speechless. And then I broke out and said, but this was torture. And she stopped and said, what did you say? I said, it was torture what was done to you. It was not punishment. But they always said it was punishing me, she said. Well, I said, but what you are describing for me, when it goes through my brain and I should tell you what I can see, what was done, it was torture. That was the opening to a detailed description of an upbringing in a very, very, very harsh family and a long life with many parts which were in a way steered and informed by just the, the fact that she was an overachiever, he wasn't, she was never punished for being good at school. Her parents were high school teachers, so punishment for good results at school were, were not actual, but she was punished for everything else, uh, as it was called. So she became an overachiever and she was very, very good at work and she became a workaholic. She said, I work myself for a high uh, instead of drinking alcohol. 
her breakdown was precipitated by something which is very complex and 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 the story is very logic i have also i've also written an, a paper about this with her of course with her co- collaboration and and contribution and and consent but there are moments which i have learned to almost feel as if i entered a sacred place and this feeling which is often combined with tears in eyes or goosebumps or or the feeling of really entering something or coming into touch with something which is very very salient very existentially important and very tangible angels must not rush in you know these moments have become for me something i have described for for colleagues and have received confirmation for some from some colleagues who do it the same way they say i could get addicted it gives so much meaning to being a doctor it gives so much meaning to being a helper it's the main premise for such an experience where patient and doctor see look at each other and both have tears in their eyes or both are visibly moved the main premise is to um to be open for hearing the unheard which which contrasts with the uh medical gaze on symptoms or bodily signs related to disease which is often the the gaze of many clinicians yes i want to just talk finally a bit more about the the structure of your chapter and, and hopefully to to wet appetites of those that haven't read your chapter but the the contrasting between the 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 medical reduction if you like of the individual in this case cecily's yeah. Um, experience or illness experience or situation and then contrasting that with the I suppose the interpretive in, or the interpreted story from you it was your interpretation is that right plus some contributions from I think a psychologist as well just this interesting sequential presentation of the medical reduction and then a much richer description of what was going on yes there are three elements in in the structure of the story or three structuring elements the one is what was written in the records uh, the other is what i learned from the therapists the psychologist and the psychomotor physiotherapist and the third um, the third source was of course Cecily's story as a whole but in a way i interpret the key for understanding step by step that this was something different than just a story about depression at a psychiatric ward were the formulations i put in between nobody asked her about which is plain language which is not biomedical language it's not a way of asking for certain things it's not a way of asking for something which follows a schematic way of thinking or a pre uh, formulated uh, scheme or or sequence it's just plain language asking how did this affect you given that you were so young when you had the cancer the first time how did it feel because the the remarks in the remarks in the records for example Cecily was asked whether she had ever abused uh, certain uh, kinds of of stuff narcotics or anything which of course is a very adequate question to every person who has health problems mainly if you enter psychiatric ward but it would be equally justifiable and not only justifiable but but 
but necessary to, to ask, have you ever been abused? Have you ever been maltreated? Because the knowledge of consequences of abuse and maltreatment for health is so solid by now that it equals the knowledge about uh, the impact on health of drugs and narcotic substances. So the next question could have been, have you ever been abused? But this question didn't come. It is not, or, or we, could, we could go into a few other of those examples because the remarks of what was not asked, what was not spoken of, what was not uh, thematized, uh, were, each of them were initiated by the remark in the records. It was close up to, but not primarily medical. In a human conversation, you would have asked these things. Perhaps in a human conversation, you would also have known that when uh, something is mentioned of in the records, there is written, she has had a period with depression two years ago and no drugs did work. A little bit later, uh, Cecilia herself says she has all her life had depressive periods. This could be an entrance to the question, the just plain normal question, what was it that was so heavy that you couldn't bear it? What was it that you couldn't live anymore despite that you were happily married and had three children? What made you so desperate? Uh, also the question about does somebody exercise power on you? How does this feel? There are so many entrances into her story which could have been unfolded in the psychiatric ward given the questions had been posed differently or given the answers of the patient had been followed up more closely and not again been disturbed or been led astray by traditional schematic ways of proceeding. And so for clinicians that might be reading that and listening to this, I suppose some, some of the, the reservations might be the concern of asking those sorts of questions, what you're going to get back, <laughs> and whether or not they're in a position to... to handles the wrong word, but to manage some of those complex stories. And I suppose, what is the, the caveat with all of this that, that I mean, that there is, there's a competency on the part of the clinician to be able to, 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 and again, deal sounds like a very paternalistic word, but to professionally cope and to, to support and direct to the appropriate potentially expertise of other clinicians but there's something to be said that or are you saying that every clinician should be open like this and to be prepared to ask these sorts of questions what's your take on how to how to handle some of this stuff from an inexperienced clinician or someone that may not be or may not feel they're adequately skilled if you like in some of these approaches this question is reasonable and I hear it very often from my colleagues when I lecture in, in postgraduate courses what shall I do with this what shall I do the next day when I am in my practice I used to say that if you sense something which gives you impression that there is there is something important if you sense that there is something you do not understand Mark this perception. It is true. Perhaps you can't follow it or the impulse it gives you the very moment. Perhaps you have just to give a sign to the patient that there is something which makes you, uh, which gives you the feeling of, of that you're missing or misunderstanding something important. But that you want to come back to that, that you allow, that you ask for permission to come back to that, because it can, you can't, you can't go forward just now. That's 
one possibility. The other possibility is, of course, to say, I would, I would say that the knowledge we have by now of the relationship between adversity experienced during lifetime and its connection to complex disease obliges the professional to take these things into consideration and to get skilled to handle it. Because there is no area of knowledge, to my knowledge, which you can ignore without uh, risking your professional uh, uh, self-esteem or the or other people's esteem, uh, as you can ignore everything which is around trauma. The most the most frequent objection I hear is. I haven't learned this and I can't be just, I can't just enter there. I can't just push myself into it. No, of course you can't and you shouldn't. Nobody should push other people to open up if you do not really invite them and mean to invite them and show that you mean it. Because traumatized people, people who have experienced integrity violation, they are very sensible for whatever signals to them that there is a person who only asks but has, has not really time to listen. They know so much about reading other persons that they would say, oh no, it's fine, nothing, nothing here, nothing special. Signaling that you feel and sense something which you consider might be important, but you don't know. Help me. The appeal to the patient to help the doctor to understand, to give informations which might be important, to touch upon things which might be uh, salient. But then, of course, on the other hand, we must admit as professionals that we perhaps not really do want to know something about this side of other pe people's lives, which is, of course, messy, complex, complicated, to know about other people's hardship is not pleasant. But it's a condition, it's a premise for understanding other people's suffering, ailments and life. And if you do want to be a professional in this way, you can't just avoid, you can't just back off, you can't just say, in a self-protective way, I cannot touch upon this because I haven't learned it. Or even worse, I need to take into consideration that when I ask certain things, my patients might get psychotic or break down on the spot. That is more a self-protection of the professionals than protecting the patients against what they all the way have known. As one of my patients said, this is only new for me. It's not new for my... Uh, only new for you. It's not new for me. I have known this all my life. So learning how to open up doesn't really demand special skills, but needs honesty, empathy, closeness, and of course then time to listen and time to take it in. And you are not forced as a professional to do something about this. My person, my, my patients and my informants have taught me that it is already of utmost importance that somebody listens to it, that somebody knows it, that it can be shared and that they can see, for example, that what is the most shameful in their lives perhaps doesn't evoke the reaction of disgust which they expect. So it can be the first confirmation of that this is important, this is salient, this is important for me to know in order to be able to help you. But let me know what you can relate now and here and we may continue because I really want to understand. And... Uh I'm conscious of the time and you've been very generous with your time. But I just wanted to ask if there was any concluding thoughts 
that you wanted to to talk about or any messages or take-home messages of the chapter? There is one crucial point which I would like to have the medical profession and all professionals in the healthcare professions to take into consideration. And it is anchored in the term embodiment. We must learn about ourselves and about our fellow human beings that we are in the world as bodies. We do not exist in other ways. And that means that whatever we experience throughout our life is embodied in us. And the embodiment follows processes which are, according to the human bodily physiology, understandable. They are logic. We know all the details on nano level. We know on cellular level how chronic distress works now. We have a term, toxic stress. We know how it is to be in the world as abused, maltreated, disgusted, marginalized, stigmatized, exploited, suppressed, disregarded. To be in the world in this way is toxic and it creates health problems which health professionals are bound to understand if they really want to help. Anna Louise, thank you so much for taking us through your chapter 15. Thank you so much, Oliver, for being interested in what's the background for it. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources and blogs. And check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain. And I'll see you next time.